watch the news as we have dealt with things. I told you all last night, just my heart has been so burdened for what's going on uh, for a couple of different reasons. Number one, I can't see the world and what we're going through as a culture and as a people, as a state, as, as a nation, watching other cities. Uh, you can't see those things. I can't see them outside of the lens of a biblical worldview. I can't see them outside of that lens. And when we're looking and when we're watching, here's, here's my heart's issue. It's almost the concept of judges. It's almost the concept in the days of Noah, right? If you remember judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. If you go back to Noah's day, it says every intention of the heart was wicked. Like we are creating, we're watching that happen right now. And as you look around and you see what's going on in pockets of, of our nation, even within our own hearts, what you and I are getting is the idea of God looking at us and just saying, your will be done. Like that's the last, that's the last judgment, that's the last thing heard by so many is you and I looking at God and saying, your will be done, or the Lord looking at us and saying, your will be done. And when our will gets done, chaos ensues. Hatred ensues. Anger ensues. These things that we're watching... Uh, on TV, and, and you know, if we didn't have the kids in here, my conversation would be a little different because I want you all to be able to take this home and talk with them. But if they flipped on the news, they're not ignorant to what's happening. We're in a, real, a really weird place. We're in a mess. And it's of our own making. And so our culture is spinning. And so as I'm watching this, I'm getting weighed down. I'm looking at things and just thinking, man, what do I need to say? What do I need to do? And after two and a half weeks or three weeks of just kind of sitting there in this funk, you just get to the point where it's just speak, Lord. What do you want to do? John chapter 6, he's teaching hard messages and the disciples look at him and, and Jesus is teaching things and people are leaving and the disciples look and they say, you're the one that has the words of life. We're not going anywhere. When that sifting process takes place, some that were following him leave Others stay, and their reason for staying is simply this. Your words speak life. And so this morning, I'm coming to you, and we're going to deviate out of what we've been doing for the last couple years. It's been two years. Did anybody see that Facebook post? Like two years. We started in Genesis. Next week, we'll be back in 1 Samuel chapter 22, if you want to read ahead. That's how far we've gotten in two years, right? Pastor Don was worried when he was here that we weren't going to make it through James before he went to be with the Lord. So this one, might, I might not be here by the time we get to, we might see Revelation Jesus before we get to read about him, right? So I'm just going to tell you that. But we are going to deviate this morning, and I'm going to take you to the greatest sermon ever preached, Matthew chapter 5. Because I am at a loss for words. I have nothing to offer this situation. And even if you offer it, a, a large close to majority won't even listen because it doesn't fit their worldview. It doesn't fit the way they see life. So even if you have all the right words, they will fall on deaf ears, hard hearts, or angry people screaming in your face. And so I'm going to yield to the one that has the words that speak life. And I'm going to walk you through a little bit of Matthew chapter 5 this morning. We're going to look at the Beatitudes and we've gone through that. But where are we right now? We're in hard days. We're in very hard days. And I'm going to tell you a couple things real quick. And I'm going to tell you why the forecast for the future doesn't look good. Now you can take it as far as you want. But I'm going to tell you, if my home is separated, nothing will move forward. 
If my wife and I are not seeing eye to eye, if we are going in opposite directions, nothing will move forward. If our church is like that, it will not go forward. Listen, you all, our nation is like that. And as much as we want to gripe about Washington, D.C. or Charleston, West Virginia, newsflash, you and I put them there. We vote, we send, we tell them to get along. Honestly, I'm going to speak from my heart this morning. Honestly, there are some people that we don't need to get along with them. We don't need to get along with them. Their worldviews lead to death. Their worldviews lead to chaos. Their worldviews lead to curses. We don't need to compromise with those people. When they are right on certain things, we can pull that out and work together. But we will not, we cannot attach ourselves to people that are totally outside the scope of biblical thought. We may be marching for the same peace, but everything else has nothing in common. We need to be careful. Our culture has lost its bearings. And what do I mean is there's no true north. Our moralities don't match. You can't run with people you don't match the same direction. You just can't do it. What, what I want to expose is the idea of this. We need a spiritual reawakening. Your children and your grandchildren need a spiritual reawakening to happen in this country right now. You say, well, that's not true. We, no, we can't, we can't get along. You're not understanding. You're not seeing the full picture. So many people want to grab tier three and miss the foundation. If the foundation is not built together, this tier will fall and stumble and break. We do not match. There is no true north. How about this one? Our, cult, our culture can't find commonalities. We don't even agree on little things anymore. Now the founders were very smart in the way they built our country because it is a republic, meaning initially the states were strong and the federal government was weak. You say, how does that idea help right now? Because if the state is strong, if I don't like where my state is going, I can move. But if I don't like where the federal government's going, I've got no options. We can't find any commonalities. You say, well, prove it. Okay, take the average person from California or New York and send them to D.C. Take the average person from West Virginia or Alabama, send them to D.C. and say, get along. It's not hard. But nobody wants to talk about that because that problem requires conversation. It requires something spiritual. It requires the Lord to deliver something out of his hand that we cannot fabricate. You see, certain people love chaos because they get power. You say, how could anybody work toward chaos? Because they want it. Go back and read history. We've got a couple founders that were familiar with the French Revolution and they lived through the American Revolution. You know what the difference was between the two? One was secular in nature and the guillotines were in the street. And you can explain to your kid what that is later. The American Revolution led to a government of people that were supposed to be able to govern themselves. The French Revolution led to a dictator that walked in and said, no more, my way or the highway. We can't find commonalities. Our relationships are broken. And I think about it like this. Social media has given you and I the opportunity to know the deepest, darkest pieces of other people without knowing them as a human or without loving them at all. All I know is where we disagree. They're not my neighbor that's helped me cut my yard. 
They're not the person that my kid has walked over into their house and they've been fed or given a drink. They're not that person anymore. They are a picture on a screen and I know everything they believe and there's enough there to say you and I are not compatible. We're done. I know where we disagree without the idea of being a person. You know, every relationship you and I make, you have to get through the, the places that you disagree. And for some, some people, that place is small, and you get through it, and a lot of times you end up dating or marrying somebody like that. They become your best friend. For other people, the differences may be a little bit bigger, so they're friends, but they're not inner circle. Does that make sense? And for some people, again, you, I don't believe you and I need to compromise with certain people. As harsh as it is to say about almost anything. And you have people that believe in a moral framework that is so skewed from ours, every piece of what they want to do has an angle or a bent that is not proper. It's skewed in a way that dishonors God, elevates mankind, or is manipulated for power. I know, I agree. That's where I spent, that's where I spent the last two weeks, every time I turned on the news or Facebook. How about this one? We can't find our heroes. I need you to listen very carefully. If your culture can't point to a hero, you're in trouble. Now we have built a culture, and I will start with the one that gets the most blame. We have built a culture where authority has let people down so poorly they will be held accountable, and I don't care what that authority is. A dad in the home, Police officer on the street, government official that was voted in, pastor's not doing what they're supposed to do. Do you understand what I'm saying? It starts there. Like we've built a culture where the respect for authority, a lot of times, in all honesty, it's supposed to be there because that's what keeps the order and the peace, but it's not been earned. Does that make sense? Now that's the culture you and I are living in right now. We have broken authority to the point where younger kids and younger people respect none of it. And I told you a couple weeks ago in the Old Testament, that child would be deemed Mara. And what would happen to that kid? What would happen to that young man, that young woman? They would be taken out and stoned. That was the penalty for what we breed. So when you've got tens of thousands of police officers around our country that put a bulletproof vest on every day and go run through neighborhoods that nobody else wants to run through for a little bit of money and very little time off. You got people that are doing that and they're walking into these places and they're being shot at. They're being provoked to rage and violence and that's not just in the last couple weeks. That's always You've got people standing in their face spitting. You've got cowards that stand behind a blockade of people throwing bricks at them. This will not end well. If you can't point to your heroes, you're never going to get along. I mean, honestly, we still have a certain segment of our population that point to Margaret Sanger as a hero. You know who she was? A eugenicist. Starter of Planned Parenthood, hated people of color, hated minorities, hated the poor. The idea was to rid culture of them. That was a good idea to her. Do you understand that there are people in our culture that look to her very high in public office and say she is a hero? God does not. 
You and I cannot compromise with people like that. That legacy will lead nowhere but destruction. And so I come to you this morning brokenhearted for what is going on. Feel my blood pressure going up. I should have probably just went on to 1 Samuel 22 and we should have been talking about David right now and his people. Where are we at? You and I have a hero. So let's start talking about him for a couple minutes. I want to hear him speak. I want to see him in charge. You know, there's a whole line of, of authority and the, the way uh, governments are run. The worst possible one is a dictatorship of an evil man. That's the worst possible one. And then they kind of ascend up. You know the best possible, and I love this because it points right to Scripture. You know the best possible form of government. It's not a democracy where 51% can hammer the 49%. It's not even a republic where nasty, shady people can get in and start to manipulate all the, all the, the bureaucratic nonsense that goes on. It's not those. You know what it is? It's a benevolent kingship. One person in charge, good, loving, and kind, ruling on behalf of those that they rule. That is the best possible form of government. There is no compromise because you don't need it. That points right to Scripture. Because what kind of government will Jesus institute? The benevolent dictator. The one that loves and cares and sees all the pictures. And he rules in a way that blesses you and I instead of cursing you and I. He is authoritative. What did he do in his life? He said, you've, you've heard it read. Or you've listened to it read. Or you've heard it said. But I say to you, he is authoritative. His word carries weight. He is strong. Right? The world's going to beat you up. When you have trouble... Hang on, because I have overcome the world. He is strong. He is tender. How about this one? I have not called you, have I not called you friends, right? Listen, if you and I could choose to be a slave in his kingdom, we would gladly do that because he would be a good, good master. But in the idea of Christ from his own words, he says, I could have called you slaves, but I haven't. I call you friends. How tender and how good. He is sacrificial. On that cross where I should have been, where you should have been, there he hung. And the moment your sin had been covered and paid and wiped away, the moment mine had, he said, it is finished. Shortly after that, he would give up his ghost. He would give up his life and die for you and I. He is sacrificial. He is forgiving. Remember that story? Peter steps in and says, Lord, all oh, if all these other losers... Right? If all these other chickens and all these other cowards, if they turn for you in the next little bit, I will not turn. And who runs as soon as it gets nasty? Oh man, I read Peter's story and I hear my own name. The cowardice to run, not to dig your heels. And not only that, but just to try to make everybody else look bad as you walked into it, right? Lord, if all them leave you. Just, Peter, keep your mouth shut. Just tell him you're going to stick by his side, right? Just don't set it any higher than that. But instead, he brings everybody else and he says, if they all leave you, I'm going to stick around. I ain't going anywhere. And at the call of a servant girl, he lies about even knowing Christ. 
Remember after the resurrection at the end of the book of John, we see a beautiful picture of what Jesus talking with Peter by himself. If you remember, one of the gospels says, go tell the disciples and Peter. After the resurrected Christ comes up, says, go tell the disciples I've been resurrected and Peter. Don't you love how the Lord pays attention to details? Peter is a train wreck right now. He is broken. He has written checks with his mouth that he couldn't keep up with. And he has betrayed his Lord. And he has done so trying to make everybody else look bad. Do you see why the Lord said, go tell the disciples and Peter? Then we see that at the end of John. Jesus restores him back to ministry. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, Lord. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Three times. Wiping away the, the sin and the frustration and the guilt of what he had done just days before. He wipes it away by Jesus walking through it with him. He is forgiving. He is present. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And he is the example. Say, so what kind of example do we need to walk through these moments? We need his example. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You need all three. You need the path, you need truth, and you and I need to be resurrected from this selfish, sinful nature that causes us to do horrible things. And so Jesus is the one we're going to listen to this morning in Matthew chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount gets started. So we're going to listen. We're going to listen this morning. We're going to ask the Lord to speak, and we're going to pray even before we read this first verse. I want to pray with you just one simple prayer. Lord, we love you. Lord, we need you. Lord, speak. Speak to our hearts. Help us to love well those that you put in our path. Jesus, speak. Amen. Chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, when he sat down, his disciples came to him, verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. For they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so they would persecute your Savior. And if you remember one of the sweetest passages in Hebrews, right, right when you get into the hall of heroes, the hall of faith heroes, if you remember that passage, it says, I would name more, but there were so many that the world wasn't even worthy to know. Those kinds of people look like this. There are a kind of people that the Lord has turned loose on this world that the world doesn't even deserve to know them. They are so close to Him. What a beautiful thought. 
And I want to be that person. I want to train our children to be those kinds of people. And it comes from this passage. I love verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he sat down. Seeing the crowds, seeing their needs, seeing our needs. He doesn't just walk by. This Lord sits. This God sits. He put on human flesh and came to this world. He is that attentive to what is going on. He loves you and I that much. Do you understand that a drop of sweat when he was living was more discomfort than he had ever felt before in heaven? That he left heaven's glory and put on this flesh where it could be hurt, where it needed rest, it needed food, it needed drink, where it could be betrayed, where it could be hurt. Seeing our needs, he doesn't just walk by. He sits down. He sees the crowd and he sits. Why? Because he wants to engage with them. The same message you and I have even to this day. He sees your needs and he's ready to sit. He wants to meet them. He is attentive. He is accessible. He is available. He sits. I will never leave you or forsake you. He's camped right close to you. Sees your needs. In this moment, even in this moment right now, he is seated and he is waiting. I love this. They come. The people that knew Christ, man, listen to me very carefully. The people that knew Jesus, when he sat down to teach, what did they do? They came. They sat. They waited. They listened. Some of them were hungry and thirsty and ended up feeding them. But it was worth the risk to sit there all day to listen to this, this authoritative sage, this wise man speak. And you and I know more about him than they did. And that access is always there. They come and he teaches. They come and he speaks. How about verse 2? He opened his mouth. You know, the Lord withholds no good thing. You commit, you sit, and he brings it. There he is, the wise one, with all the answers. He really has all of them. And if he's not fixing things on the outside, he's reminding you and I that our biggest problem is not out there. Our biggest problem is right here. It is within. I am my own worst enemy. I am the one that causes most of the chaos in my life. It's not going on out there. If it was going on out there, the Christian stories you and I lift up so high, the people that we look at as heroes, we would not know their name because the chaos would have taken them too soon. It would have broken them. It would have taken them out. Instead, they persevered because what was in them was more than the circumstances that was outside of them. He opened his mouth. See, in verse 2, we see that he starts to teach. I just love the idea that he withholds no good thing from us. You and I need good things right now. We need what he has to offer. The idea of being blessed or blessed is happy, rich. If you read it a little different, if you, if you kind of get out of the biblical language, I've, I've enjoyed reading through it in a different way, right? Happy is the person. Rich 
is like, how can you be rich and poor in spirit? How can you be happy and persecuted? How can you be happy and maligned falsely? Because that's the power of God. Your Savior could do it. Our mothers and fathers, our spiritual mothers and fathers could do it. That's why the church is even here. Because when these bad things have happened, the fruit of the church has always won the day. You see, from the day the church started, nobody wanted it to be here. No power, no government, no authority. They've burnt its book. They've tried to hold it in different languages. They've burnt those that have tried to, uh, to give it to the common man. Like all throughout history, the, the earth has not wanted, the world has not wanted what the church had to offer. And yet the fruit of what God does makes it sustain. And here's the absolutely out of this world part. It grows. In the places that it's persecuted the most, where the church is hurt the most, it has the most power, the most authority, and the most converts. That ought to blow our mind. It's a frustrating piece to how our human nature reacts to ease. We get lax and we fade away, but when the pressure's on, right, diamonds, diamonds rise, or when the heat is on, that gold comes to the top, that dross is gone and that gold is left. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean? It's just, it's an idea of humility. It's an idea of humility. We've talked about this over and over again. If you want to know God in your life, be humble, be thankful. And if you will land with humility and thanksgiving, you will know God, you will have everything you need. And let me tell you the, the, the flip side to this idea. You will be the best person, the most authoritative and the most useful person you have ever been in your life. You say, how can that be? If I don't make much of myself, how am I going to be used? Because the Lord sees the humble and he sees the thankful and he uses them to change the world. You will be your best self. People will love you more. They will be drawn to you more. You will be useful. Some people will hate you and despise you because you look like God, but that's just part of the plan right now. But what kind of life gives you the best outcome comes through being poor in spirit, humble. They know God now because they are the kind of people that make up his kingdom. There is no pride in heaven. There's glory given to God. Pride goes with the enemy. Nothing good comes from it. This whole self-esteem movement of the last 30 or 40 years or however old that curse is has cursed a lot of people because it's always generated about what's within you and not what's without you. And you and I have this really, really uh, disastrous uh, propensity to run into things that show us how empty we are. And if we don't commit them, we figure out that the circumstances we can't overcome. So self-esteem always runs out. Pride is always evil. You and I need to stand in humility because the God of the universe is our Father and Jesus Christ is big brother and He is King and He loves us and you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you understand how that is biblical and it is so much better than self-esteem? It cannot be taken. It lasts forever. Boy, can you see how you can be happy and rich and blessed when that is your theology? The poor in spirit know the Lord right now. Why? Because they're the people that make up his kingdom. How about verse 3 again? Blessed 
or verse 4, I'm sorry, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I ask you, what's worth mourning right now? What kind of mourning gets comforted? It always starts internally. Don't mourn or grieve for what's going on out there until you mourn or grieve for what's going on in your own heart. Don't mourn or grieve for what you're watching until you mourn or grieve for what's going on within, within you. The things that you have to deal with daily. The struggle that you're dealing with daily. The struggle that I'm dealing with daily. If I mourn over my own sin, I will be comforted. God will comfort that. Start there. If you mourn there first, you won't have to worry about anything else. Your heart will be right with the Lord. You will hear him speak. You will watch him move. You will be a part of that plan. He will supply your needs, right? The idea of wanting what the kingdom wants first, it starts by mourning my own sin and mourning my own depravity and knowing I need tremendous help to get through them. How about this? What other kind of mourning gets comforted? The mourning when you and I mourn for others. This is one of the most needed things about community. We've built a culture where we don't have to mourn with anyone anymore. We're not close enough to them to do it. Right? I mean, we got people that aren't church people mocking the idea of prayers. Right? Facebook prayers. Prayers. Get my part. That was hard. Took two and a half seconds to type that out. Really, I'm sorry you're going through that. Prayers. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with that if you mean it. But if we stop there, we've lost the idea of what it means to mourn with those that are mourning. The suffering of others will be comforted. How about the state of the world we live in? Remember Romans chapter 8, it says the whole world is groaning, waiting for the sons and the daughters of God to be revealed. That is you and I. The whole world is groaning, waiting for you and I to be put back in right fellowship with God. And when that happens, the stewardship of the, work, the, the earth is handed back to you and I. The stewardship of the universe is handed back to you and I. And God tells us to love and live the way he does in perfect peace. That kind of mourning gets comforted. How about verse 5? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What is the idea of meekness? Those whose power is under control. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power under control. The meekest man to ever live was Jesus Christ. And at any moment he could have thrown off anything he was done with. The power was reserved. See, this is the kind of man that we need right now to stand up in our families, in our church, in our communities. This is the kind of men that we used to want in the police force, in the military. We don't want power-hungry, insane people running around. That's not. We want powerful, but we want them to be meek. We want them to look like Christ. Who could have, but didn't. But when the moment come to flip a table or when the moment come to face down the devil, you know what he did? He did exactly what he was asked to do. The right thing. In the right moment. With the right force. Weakness is not helpful. Meekness is absolutely godly. When the moment comes, can you turn it on? When there are things in your life that are worth fighting over, Will you put your head down, your nose down? Will you get brow down? Will you dig your heels in? Will you do something? We can be angry and not sin. We can fight and not sin. There's a lot of things that we can work through on that. But let me tell you this. The weakness and the cowering has got to stop. 
the weakness and the cowering has got to stop. So we look for those that have power under control. And what is that? It looks like this. It comes out in obedience. I read that this morning. Loved it. Had to put it in. What's it look like to be meek? Meekness is obedience. Why? Because I have the power to do what I want, but I am shoving that, pushing that, fighting against that, crucifying that, and I am obeying things that are outside of what I want to do. That is a form or a piece of meekness. It is power under control. I have the power to do what I want. I also know that I would eventually destroy my own life and my family and my church. But it doesn't change the fact that it's there. Go do it. And watch what happens. Obedience is a form of meekness. You have the power to do what you want to do. But you are obeying what God has told you to do. The meek shall inherit the earth. That is the kind of person. You, know, you go back to the idea of even Adam, man. This guy just woke up. In the middle of this world, with all of these animals and all of this stuff and all of this beauty and all of this wonder, and he was told, subdue it. That's not a boring job. A lot of men have a lot of trouble dealing with church stuff because they think boring. They look at Christ and they don't see meek, they see weak. They look at church men and they don't see meek, they see weak. They've never seen anybody. The idea forever was to be a good church guy. And John Eldridge hammered this in Wild at Heart. To be a good church man was to sit in the back and not cause any trouble. Boy, that worked out really well for our churches, didn't it? Got godly young women that can't even find a husband. Because we're not creating any worth having. If you got daughters, you're a little angrier about that. And if you got sons, I hope it pricks something. The earth belongs to the obedient. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. To long for the right things is to always be satisfied. Oh man, if there's one message in our culture I wish we could all just absorb, it's this. To long for the right things is to always be satisfied. You'll find God there. You'll find usefulness there. Beauty there. What can you long for, man? You can long for good relationships. First with the Lord and first with your family and with the people in your community. You can long to be helpful. We long for so many things and we're so dissatisfied. I'm longing for a newer car. I'm longing for a newer hip. That's brewing. Right? We long for so many things, and they're poison, they're chaotic, they're disastrous. We chase them, and they don't satisfy. It is the story of the American culture, the greedy top and the greedy bottom. Very few people have the audacity to say that. The greedy top and the greedy bottom are always looking for something else to be dissatisfied in when they get there. A bigger car, a bigger house, newer this, newer that, newer phone, newer clothes, newer shoes, and we get them, and the first thing you do is step in a mud hole. Because you live in West Virginia, and it rains every three hours. We're dissatisfied, not because we don't have everything the world has to offer. Do you understand that? would love to have a more adult conversation with you right now, but I'm just going to say this. Everything the world has told you will make you happy and fill you up. The American culture has it in abundance. 
we are the most broken-hearted, dissatisfied, nasty, unappeasable people on the planet. People in Africa live on less than you and I will ever deal with, and they find somehow a way to be at peace and be satisfied. To whom much is given, much is required. That's going to come up here in a couple minutes. But let me tell you this, to whom much is given in accordance with stuff, much is going to be required in accordance with accountability. And my friends, I'm terrified to say this, but you and I are the rich. Jesus said it was easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it was for a rich man to see the kingdom. Around the world, you and I are the 2%. You know, the people that we love to rail at out in the streets and get mad at when we see them on TV and we scream about the 2% and how horrible they are. You understand, if you take that lens and you just back it up a little bit, that's you and I. To whom much is given, much is required. Are you hungry and thirsty for the right things? If your belly and your spirit are growling, which one is satisfied first? Man, that hurts me. Quarantine has not been good. My belly has been satisfied. Now my hip's mad at me and the doctor's probably going to be irritated, but it is what it is, right? How about verse 7? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. There's going to come a day in your life, there's going to come a day in mine when we take that last breath and we land in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And I promise you this, you will not cry for justice that day. You know what you're going to cry for? Mercy. Mercy. Mercy, Lord. Show me mercy. Let me tell you something about this life right now. Learn how to show mercy now. Show it. Because one day it will be the only thing you want. Show mercy. Love people well. When they mess up, show mercy. Why? Because one day it's going to be the only thing you want. You're going to look in the eyes of perfection and beg for mercy. Say, well, you don't know how mean so-and-so was to me or whatever else. Get over it. God, I love you. I don't want you to be bitter and angry. I don't want the enemy to sow those seeds and destroy your life because he will. And if you hold a grudge, do you remember the wicked servant Jesus told us that parable? Oh, my goodness, it makes me want to, it makes my stomach queasy to even think about it, right? Parable of the wicked servant, right? The one had borrowed an astronomical amount of money and could not pay it back. And he goes into the king's room and he begs for help and the king says, I'm throwing you in prison and your family until it's paid back. You don't understand, in scripture, that number is astronomical. It's, it's, it's thousands of lifetimes of work. Right? It's a billionaire handing you $10 billion and saying invest my money and then a little while later he calls you in and says paying it back and you've lost it all. That's the equivalent. It's, it's thousands of lifetimes of work. He can't pay it back. Go to prison. Please show me mercy. Okay. I'll forgive your debt. The man gets up and he leaves and Jesus tells the parable that when he walks out he finds a guy that owes him a couple months wages. A denarii was a day's wage. This other person owed him a couple months' wages. And what does he do? He grabs him, he beats him, he demands his money, and when the man can't pay and begs for mercy, he says, you're going to prison until you pay me back. And Jesus says, you wicked servant. You were forgiven all of this and refused to forgive a little bit of that. 
Some of you all have had a hard time in life. Some of you all have been abused. Some of the people watching, you've been abused, and some of the stuff we would not want to mention in public. I understand that. But let me tell you this. When we land in front of Christ and we see the purity of God, we will understand that it was us with the bigger debt to be forgiven. And if I leave the king with that debt forgiven and I start holding other people accountable when he has let me go, do you understand that if the, t the timing of the story matters, if it's reversed, it makes perfect sense? Because if I owe somebody $1,000 and you owe me 10 and I come and say, I need my 10 bucks right now, I'm going to have a little something to walk into this next room with. So you owe me a little bit of money, give it to me. If Jesus tells the story in that manner, it makes perfect sense. Because what would you and I be doing? We'd be collecting our debt, people owe us money. And we'd be going in with a little bit of what we have and we would be begging for mercy. Jesus tells the story in a specific way to prove the point. He had already been forgiven. Not postponed or deferment or whatever other crazy stuff they talk about with college loans. It wasn't any of that. It was forgiven. Slate's clean. And he goes out and throws the next person in prison. Be merciful and you know the the opportunity to be merciful means this somebody has wronged you you can't be merciful if nobody's ever wronged you so jesus is saying you're going to be wrong be merciful most of us will never look more like jesus than when we can show mercy there have been counseling session after counseling session that i have had with people in the last 10 years where something very very bad has been done to them and you look at them and you say this is your moment to look more like christ than you ever will in your life. It's easy to look like Jesus when everything is good. It's easy to be happy with a grin and slap five and hang out and eat food. But man, when you've been hurt, you have the opportunity to look more like him than you ever have before. To whom much is given, much is required. And a lot of mercy has been poured out on you and I. A lot of mercy. Please. Do not forget that. Look at verse 8, and we're going to wrap up here in just a minute. Pure in heart. You see what we're looking for. You see what we're looking for, right? My attitude, right? What is it? Attitude dictates altitude, stuff like that. You see what you're looking for. So what does the pure in heart get to see? God. You mean they can see him in the chaos? You better believe it. They can see him in a protest? Yeah. They could see him with two people hugging on each other or, or, or whatever is going on, love and care and forgiveness. They see God there. They see God there. They can see him in D.C. They can see him at work. They can see him in my heart. They can see him in my home. They can see him in my action. The pure in heart sees the Lord work. A lack of corruption leads to better vision. The pure in heart will see God. Look at verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. If you scribble in your Bible... Draw an arrow from that one to meekness. Being a peacemaker and being a peacekeeper are not the same thing. I've said it a hundred times and I'll say it till the day I die. Being a peacekeeper means you look over things that you don't want to mess with. Being a peacekeeper means that evil people get to continue in and out of your company, in and out of your church. Too many pastors are peacekeepers. Right? Well, so-and-so's just got a little bit of sin. They're just a little bit mean. They're just a little bit nasty. They're just doing a little bit of this. They're not bothering me. Peacemakers come in when there is chaos and start to love and bring about reunification. 
be a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. God's sons do God's work. What did God do? He is the ultimate peacemaker. See, you and I were at war with him. We wanted his throne. We wanted his life. Fortunate for both of us, he's a peacemaker. So through the life of Christ, you and I get both justice and mercy. Vertical peace with God, horizontal peace with others. Verse 10, blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do not think because you carry around the badge of Christian that your persecution is, is actually for being righteous. Sometimes you and I do stupid stuff or say stupid things and the persecution comes because that is the punishment or that is the recourse. But if you're trying to love the Lord and you're loving people and you're persecuted, just realize that's because you don't belong here. This isn't your home. Heaven is. Heaven belongs to the humble, the sacrificial, and the tenacious, those that keep going. And verse 11 and 12, Blessed are the others when they revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for the reward is great in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you're reviled and hated falsely, not because you deserve it, don't be a Christian jerk. This really just makes you a jerk. Right? And if you slap Christian on the front of it and you act like a jerk and people look at you and think you're a jerk constantly, then you're doing a disservice to Jesus. Be strong, be courageous, but be loving, be merciful, be kind. Rejoice in the lies. Why? Because he is the truth and he's going to use you and reward you. Rejoice in the criticism. Why should you and I rejoice in criticism? Because the Lord's going to use you mightily for his work. What do I care if they're criticizing if God is using me? Rejoice in the persecution because he's going to avenge you. He's going to make things right. And rejoice in the lies because he is the truth. And blessed be who? Those that are salt and light. This piggybacks to a beautiful analogy coming up in 13 and 14. The idea of being salt is the idea of being a preservative, the idea of being flavoring. Do you understand that without the Christian life, the Christian experience of this world, is, is not only is it bland, but it is spoiled and rotten. Salt is a preservative. Salt is flavoring. You and I add to this life the pieces that make it worth living. The last 2,000 years, every issue of humanity, every human rights issue has not been touched without a Christian influence. Why? Because the world doesn't have it. The world has might makes right. Right? It's red and tooth and claw. Those that have the power or have the strength have the power. Everything that has been corrected in this world has come about because of Christian influence. That preservative, that flavoring. And then finally with light, what do you get? Vision and life. You are the salt of the earth. And if that salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father 
who is in heaven. As they come this morning to play, if Jesus speaks to you and I, and he speaks to us in the middle of this chaos, what he is saying to you and I is exactly what you can read in Matthew chapter 5. Be a peacemaker. Be pure. Be humble and poor in spirit. Be salt. Be light. You know, the age of social media has, has really kind of hammered me with this one idea, especially in the last couple of weeks. I cannot love people that aren't close to me. You read these things and you, and you read these issues and you see things that are going on across the country. You and I really cannot love them. Prayers. Thoughts and prayers. Right? I love that one. How useless is good vibes? I don't even know what that means. How that's even helpful. I can't love them. You know who I can love? My family. My church. My work. The people I'm going to run into in the hospital. The people you're going to run into in the hospital. The people you're going to run into at Mountain Mart. You know who I can love? I can love them. I can love my neighbor. And boy, finding them on social media is almost impossible. Finding them on the internet is almost impossible. Your neighbors are right here. If you're not loving the people in your house well, the people in your community well, the people in your church well, then you could forget about being a keyboard warrior anywhere else. You and I need a revival of loving our families, our church, our community well. We need to beg God and to show up and do something in our heart and then in our communities. Because I'm telling you right now, we're going into a dark, dark place. And you're not going to be able to help. So if I can just appeal to the parents and the grandparents for a moment with this idea. If you and I don't leverage into the kingdom of God, we're going to set our children up for failure. Now that is the bottom line. At a bare minimum, we better be teaching them to be disciples. Because we're going to turn them loose in a country that's almost not worth living in. And I will finish it like this this morning. Keep yourself out of certain situations where you shouldn't be. There's going to be some stuff in Charleston going on this week. There's going to be some stuff all over the world. Listen to me. You keep yourself out of situations. You find other ways to love and be helpful and push back against stuff. Don't get in the middle of something where you land in trouble. You see people blocking the road, turn around and get out of there. The mob mentality makes people crazy. And the idea that they can get away with it multiplies their evil. It doesn't add it together. It multiplies exponentially opportunity to get away with doing something bad that's the world we live in that's what we're handing our children now we better teach them how to live in it and strive through it or we will have done them a horrible disservice and you and i will be held accountable i love you i want to see you blessed i want to hear well done i want to see when you cry out for that mercy that time that it actually happens will you stand with me this morning you want to come and you want to pray what would jesus say to you and i ask him to speak